Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. What I've had on my mind lately is a phrase that I just happened to kind of say in a conversation with a friend several weeks back. I was thinking through some things, as I often do audibly, just talking talking about them. And for one of the rarer times in my life, I wasn't saying, the, I didn't say this phrase because it made sense intellectually. I said this phrase because it felt right. And the phrase was, self-care is just the shadow cast by joy. It's a little bit more poetic, but I think that it really gets to a solid point. And of course, the first question that it begs is, what is joy? Uh, to me, if joy is a word very much like ones that I've mentioned in recent podcasts. It's a joy. It's a word like love. It's a word like wisdom. At least in common English parlance, it's really hard to define. So let's focus on joy for a little while. What does it mean to have joy? Well, certainly it can't just be happiness. Happiness is an emotional state, and happiness is very temporary. If we don't mean something more by joy, in other words, if joy is just a synonym for happiness, then fine, we have synonyms for a lot of words. But I think we all know that there's something deeper that we at least intend to mean by the word joy. Joy, for example, is a word used in a bunch of Christmas carols. Joy is a word that's used in the Bible, uh, usually connected with God and living in, living a godly and righteous life. It has to mean something more than just a occasional and short fit of emotion. So rather, um, as I often do, rather than just trying to go straight for the definition, I'm going to go for something a little bit different and head into what is it that produces joy. So certainly some of the things that eliminate the capacity for joy and this, and by doing this i think we can illuminate some of the things that produce joy have to do with ways that we're manipulated ways that we are controlled by others for example if we're taught that any time that you have a thought for yourself or a preference for yourself or want to care for yourself in some way perhaps defend yourself from manipulation or rage or danger that you're being selfish and i'm not saying that to every one of the extremes that i just mentioned um this sort of learning is used or training is used but my point stands that many people particularly religious and often christian people who essentially believe in some idea of pathological altruism will teach you that anytime you want to have any sort of self-favor or self-care you're being selfish you're only looking out for yourself. You're only looking out for number one. And of course, the issue is seldom addressed, if not never addressed, that if you don't take any care for yourself, if you allow yourself to be completely burnt out in this completely selfless act of just looking out for the good of others, which, by the way, the Bible does not say whatsoever. It says is do not look or do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to and think of others better than yourself, or think of others' needs more than your own. It's something more to that effect. It does not 
leave out the idea of thinking about your own interests. And as we've talked about in the past, love your neighbor as yourself implies that you love yourself. And if you do not love yourself sufficiently, how can you have a context through which to love your neighbor? But anyways, returning to the main point. If you're taught that kind of a thing, if you're taught that you're being selfish any time that you have any thought for yourself, then how on earth are you going to think of yourself as anything more than essentially slime or everybody else's slave? Yes, we are, according to the Bible, to be each other's servants, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens. But that doesn't make us each other's slaves. That doesn't make us slime as compared to the next person or some sort of bug or mere lemming or minion to be used by others. So that can certainly kill our joy. Another thing that can kill our joy is mere depression. Now, I say mere depression, and perhaps that is ill-advised. Depression comes from a source. The very word, consider it, to be depressed or to have a point of depression implies pressure being put down on a surface. You are depressed. You are held down. So think of it like pressing your finger really hard against a bed cushion. You will, in the effort of doing so, cause a depression. So the point that I'm making here is that people who are depressed, and I mean more specifically continuously or um, chronically depressed, probably have something barreling down on them. They could be outside of the environment that put in them that did this to them in the first place, such as, again, abusive parents or maybe an abusive teacher or something like that. But that doesn't mean that the person's influence on them has fully gone away. Again, they may have been programmed by the same sorts of things that I was just talking about earlier, such as any time you have any favor for yourself, you're considered to be selfish. And if you still believe that, if you're still struggling against that belief, but you haven't put it down yet, then you still have that force upon you. And that force can cause depression. Or it may be that you're very ill-positioned in a very admittedly unjust, unjust uh, society in many ways, not in all ways. Uh, and as a result, that is continuously bearing down on you. Now, of course, today we just try to prescribe drugs instead of dealing with issues that may very legitimately and in an almost physical sense be depressing you. If you can't deal with that sort of a depression, then how on earth could you reach anything consider, even close to what we call joy? And you could be in an environment of unhealthy relationships, work relationships, personal relationships, family relationships. And a lot of these, of course, are going to have a good deal of overlap. You could end up being depressed in a situation of many, many unhealthy relationships. And you could, of course, believe a great deal of very false things. But what I'm trying to get at, again, is that while these things may interrelate, all of them also have something else in common in that they make something like joy impossible to obtain. And yeah, I'm not talking about the definition yet, but I'm trying to get to it in an inverted fashion. So if we do invert these ideas, 
First of all, if you believe things that are true and do lead to good self-care, considering yourself at least within rational limits, giving at least some thought to your own needs and desires, and presenting them honestly to people around you, which, by the way, will also help facilitate healthy relationships, then that is not just going to put you into a better position, in my opinion, with yourself, with your relationship, honestly, with yourself, but it's also going to put you more in parallel with the world. And if you don't believe me, let me explain that just a little bit. We live in a world of literally billions of individuals. One of the simplest things in my mind, and not to say that it's simple to figure it out, but it's simple when you figure it out, that we need to, yeah, one of the simplest things that we can figure out about this world of billions of individuals is that they are all individuals. It's really incredible when you think about it in this context. One of the first times I realized this was during a volunteer event at a rather massive church. And everybody who was walking by, most of them from out of, out of town, out of state, had an entire history already built up. These were just teens. These were just 12 to 14-year-olds or so. And they already had an entire history, an entire set of ideas an entire family, etc., etc., entire environment that was all individual to them. And when you get down to the real nitty-gritty of it, individual to nobody else. They were all their own story. It would take a literal eternity to know each of them, even probably, or not, maybe not a literal eternity, but it would be essentially intellectually impossible to even understand all the stories of the people that there were there that particular day. But to dig a little bit deeper into what I'm getting at here, the fact that everybody is an individual means that they are all at the base level interested in the same things that we are interested in at the base level. What are those interests? Well, they're going to be a number of things depending on differences like gender or age or growing up environment. But there are still some commonalities even when you consider those. The commonalities such as that everybody wants to be happy, everybody wants to survive, everybody wants to in some sense or other be successful, and everybody wants to, usually in some similar senses, especially once you've hit the teen years, wants to experience pleasure. We want to mitigate or at least reduce the amount of suffering that we must endure. We wish to avoid uncomfortable emotions, or at least on the surface we do, emotions like anger and sadness. We all want these things. Now, if we all want that, those sorts of things in common, and even among those people who seem to have a desire to be fearful or desire to be always anxious or something like that, not necessarily because they would say so, but because that's what they're constantly doing. The fact of the matter is they're getting some benefit out of it. They're getting something that they want more than they fear or dislike the uncomfortable emotions of anxiety, etc. And if you don't believe that, just again, watch them, study them, understand how they function. Why do they keep going back to the same ideas that make them anxious? One example is, again, as I've used in previous podcasts, eschatology, 
where people believe that their generation will be the last one on Earth. And this makes them feel very important. If you can feel that important, isn't that worth the cost of emotions like anxiety? And if they feel that they're that important, do they not get a sense of pleasure out of that? Now, anyway, I want to don't want to go too far off into digressions, but if every person, once again, is interested in similar things, then why on earth does it make any sense to consider any person's personal and individual desires to be any more or less important than anybody else's? Everybody is an individual. Everybody is a human being, at least among human beings, of course. And we could even have a degree of this interest or um, conscientiousness about animals. They are still interested in some of the same things. They seem at least to be happier when they have good connections with their fellow beasts and with human beings. But focusing on human beings, how does it make any sense to consider anybody's desires more or less important than any others, which includes yourself? Now, yes, I think that the Bible makes some very strong and needed points, particularly in environments where people are very arrogant and self-absorbed and interested primarily in their own interests. This often does occur when the world is in a greater in, is in much more of a state of mere survival. Why? Because, of course, for good reasons, if you are in a state of thinking about your survival from the very start, then you're going to be more inclined to care about the interests of number one. Not even necessarily for unjust reasons or unethical reasons, but because in order to survive, you have to be interested in your own concerns. But if that is the, is the environment that you're trying to spread a thing like, I don't know, universal moral ethics, Christianity in, then you're going to have to emphasize the correction of an error that that lends itself to. In other words, telling people to consider others' needs beyond their own, or above or before their own. Not to the diminution of your own, but to the correction of your own interests, or your own mindfulness of your own interests. So, what I was arguing there once again, just to bring you back, bring us all back, is why it is rational to consider your own needs and desires. If you have this belief, I believe you are settling more in reality, more in parallel with the world as it actually is, rather than some fiction where if you make yourself a complete and utter doormat, you're somehow fitting into a greater reality. Again, just study the life of Jesus. Did he actually act that way? If you want to go to the cross, you could possibly make that argument. I don't think you actually could, but you could try. When it comes to the rest of his life, he absolutely cared for himself. Anyway, let's see, where were we? If you can get out of a state of depression, where are you going to get yourself? Well, you're going to get yourself out from under the thumb of the manipulations, the coercions, the controls of either others or powers that are trying to do that to you. Or another way of putting it is that if you could get yourself out of, out of a depressive state, you are getting into a free state. 
And if we are all possessing a free will and are given the right by God himself to exert our free will, to use our free will, then for us to be free is for us to be where we're supposed to be. And if we can have good relationships with other people, as one of my teachers says it, you know, we are not cats, we are dogs, we're social creatures, we're meant to have relationships. If we can have healthy relationships with those around us, we are going to help ourselves out of depression, we're going to help ourselves out of false narratives and false ideas and beliefs. Again, and this, is, this implies good relationships with good people. You can't have good relationships with unhealthy people. You can only have unhealthy relationships with unhealthy people. But if you have good relationships, then you are with good people. And I'm not talking about perfect people. I'm talking about the sort of people who consistently and self-aware, with self-awareness, pursue morality, ethics, virtue, justice, etc. So if you have relationships like that, you're going to be helping to facilitate all the other things and you are going to make yourself a great deal more healthy individually. You're going to be more free. You're going to be less depressed. You're going to believe less false things and gradually grasp new good things and ideas and truths. My opinion about the definition of joy, first of all, is that obviously differentiating from happiness, it is a sustained state of being. It means being in a sustained happy state because you are, or sorry, not a sustained happy state as in you're constantly just, you know, happy and smiling and joyful all the time. We've all met people who at least try to appear to be that way. And I think for many of us, those people are very grating and annoying. Um, joy, I do not believe, is like that. Joy is more like buoyancy. Joy rather than being like, I don't know, a cloud that pretends to be permanent. That's kind of how I see the plastic smile people, if you will. Joy is more like a beacon in the ocean. It is meant to stay on the surface. It's only when you damage it greatly that it will begin to sink. But if it's working the way it's supposed to work, it will stay on the surface of the ocean. Now, that ocean may become very tumultuous. The buoy may uh, sink a little bit, but then it'll rise back up. It could even fall almost entirely into the ocean if it's especially turbulent, but it will come back up. Why? Because it's filled with air, and it will come back to the top. That, to me, is a picture of joy. And the way that joy is achieved, if I, as I started saying earlier, is being enveloped in a world of reality where you are truly happy to be. Or to put it another way, you like the world you live in. You're not, you're not under a depressed state or a depressing force. You like the people you are among. You believe not just positive things, but positive things that are true. If you can achieve these things, then you are grasping joy, in my opinion. Because all of these things are sustained. All of these things are at least sustainable. And they can be consistent. They can be, as it were, sticky, like a buoy. 
that can continue to stick to the top of water and float. Another thing that I think is necessary for joy is confidence. And using the definition that I brought us to at the highest level, it comes from being anchored in that which is universal and un universal positive and unchanging, or universal good and unchanging. That is what produces the highest level of confidence, and that, once again, roots itself in something that is either very sustainable, or in this case, completely unchanging by definition. It cannot be altered. Universal ethics, God. And if we have that, then we have something that gives us a, a sustainable state of at least buoyant happiness. The doldrums can only last so long. The joy, or sorry, the happiness, the positive, the positivity, or at least neutrality, which I think is actually fairly rare for anyone, are going to be more seldom. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. The reality for the atheist, I'm going to botch the quote a little bit, but anyway, the reality for the atheist is that joy is peripheral and sorrow is central. For the Christian, sorrow is peripheral and joy is central. And I think he had a very good point. If you do really believe that the world is red in tooth and claw and everything has only been provided to us by random time plus matter plus chance, then yeah, even though those advances have been overall beneficial and it's not just blind chance on top of blind chance, still the fact of the matter is you believe in a world that only survives or only has at least survived up to this point by being red in tooth and claw. That not only is a base reality that is merely constantly changing and therefore does not have universality, but it also is a very depressing vision of the world. If you are a Christian and you believe that at the core of reality is a loving God who created out of love itself, the desire to have others to love, then the core of your idea of reality as a whole is a universal, unchanging good and love. So, anyway, I can, I can sense that there's probably a good deal of objection to my entire line of reasoning thus far, because, it's, because, of course, what I have been doing is arguing that which produces joy, rather than talking about joy as being the shadow of the things produced. Uh, or, sorry, joy casting a shadow, which are the things produced. Really, the question is, what are, what are you really arguing, Adam? Is it the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken? And to a certain extent, I think this does break down. Because when it comes to actual life, especially if you're looking at somebody who is coming out of a life of false narratives and beliefs, a life of poor relationships, a life of depression, and coming into a life of, of happiness and a lack of depressing or depression into healthy relationships, into good and true beliefs, then you are seeing somebody who is gradually developing more towards joy at every step. But without the joy, without a sustained, buoyant way of living, an attitude of living, 
why would we take care of ourselves? If we do not have the buoyant, generally happy, almost very rarely sad, and even when sad, it's short. How could we convince ourselves to get up in the mornings? How could we convince ourselves to go out and hike, even if it's just because we want to take care of our bodies, or lift weights, or do sit-ups and push-ups? I personally prefer crunches, by the way, to sit-ups. Anyways, why would we bother? Really, think about it. It doesn't even matter if you have the most intimate relationship of all, if you're married or not. You still have your own self to wrestle with. You still have your own self to convince each and every day. How are you going to behave? Are you going to go for that promotion or not? Are you going to seek a raise or not? Are you going to take care of your body or not? Are you going to have a good diet or not? Part of the source of that is your attitude about your life as a whole. And if you do not, as I mentioned as part of the definition of joy, or at least the, what produces, no, it wasn't the definition, it was what produces joy, which is being in a world you are happy to be in, a world that you like. If you don't have that, why care? Why bother? Why really put out effort to try? If you do have that, how could you possibly conv be convinced out of taking good care of yourself? So that is what I mean when I say that self-care is just the shadow cast by joy. These two things, so to speak, the world that you like to live in, that you actually consider good, at least in the sense of your personal world, your personal environment, that takes a process and during that process, you continue to build the framework of joy. But then the joy begins to feed back into increasing that world that you like, which then feeds back into giving you more joy. It is not really a cause and effect. It is a cycle. And if you want to have joy, you have to start getting into the cycle. How, did, how do you do that? Well, maybe that'll be a topic for another podcast. But for now, that's all I really wanted to say for today. So I'm signing off. Have a great one.